Now, as a church this year, we are rallying around um, sort of a, I don't know if it's a mantra or manifesto or really like heartbeat for the year. And that is, we are still setting our eyes on being, becoming, being with Jesus, becoming more like Jesus and doing what he did. And we are doing that by becoming resilient disciples who are a faithful family in the face of cultural coercion, who live a vibrant life in the spirit, and are empowered as a missionally courageous presence here in our world. And over the next four weeks, that huge statement that we're taking together, we're kind of dividing up into four parts. The first is resilient disciples. And that was last week. So if you missed last week, go check out our app, check out the website and grab the sermon from last week where we unpacked what it means to be resilient disciples. Two, today we're talking about what it means to be a faithful family in the face of cultural coercion. Next week, what it looks to live a vibrant life in the spirit. And the last week of this vision series is what it means to be empowered as a missionally courageous presence in our city. So if you have a Bible, go to Luke 15. And what we're doing is we're taking one story from Jesus that he gives, these stories that are sort of meant to describe what the kingdom of God is like and what it means to follow Jesus. We're looking at one of those stories as an anchor and a foundation for our vision series. So go ahead and head to Luke chapter 15 if you have a Bible or a Bible app in front of you. We're going to start in verse 11 and we're going to take it all the way to the end. And he said, Jesus... There was a man who had two sons. Now, this is a pretty familiar story, even if you have a cursory understanding of the Bible. This is usually one of Jesus' more famous stories, and it's usually sort of titled as the story of the prodigal son. But Jesus himself gives us a better title in that very first line. This is about a man who had two sons. And the younger of those sons said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And, he had, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything." But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, if we stop there, this is a uh, happily ever after type story. This sounds amazing. This sounds great. And we're reading about this, this moment from Jesus. And we're going, yeah, this is, this is so amazing. This is so great. But remember, this is about what it means to live in the kingdom of God, what it means to follow Jesus. And this is a story about two sons, not just one. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field 
And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He hears the party that's going on for his younger brother. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf. And because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is a story about a father with two sons who in very different ways are looking to take control of their own lives at the expense of the father, right? The older son keeps all the rules while the younger son breaks all the rules. And both sons are running from the father to try to get control over their own life. And the two sons, as we said last week, I'll remind you again, represent the two different audiences that Jesus was talking to. He was talking to the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the socially undesirable people who were the marginalized and the outcasts. And he was talking to the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious elite, those who, at least on the outside, looked like they had it all together. So first you have these moral failures of people gathering around Jesus that, that are trying to live life on their own terms, but are leaving a path of destruction behind them. And then you have these morally upstanding people like the Pharisees who thought that all their rule obeying and virtue keeping would somehow win them favor with God or earn them a place in the kingdom of God. And Jesus told both audiences the story about two different ways about running away from God. So no matter who you are, you can actually find yourself in this story. But we have to remind ourselves, who is the story primarily about? Is it about the two sons or is it about the father? It's about the father, which means even though we can find our, our own story in one of the stories of the sons, we are meant to look to the father as an example. So we're meant to look to the father as the right way of living in the kingdom of God. We're supposed to look to our father as the model for living. And that's what we have today. Last week, we looked at this story and tried to understand what it meant to be resilient by looking at the Father. And today, I think we can learn something about faithfulness by looking at the story of the Father with the sons. Now, with the sons, notice this false kind of faithfulness. From the older brother, we have this kind of moment at the end where he's disgruntled and, and disheartened by the story that's happening, or by the party that's happening in the story. Like he, it doesn't even seem like he gets invited in at the beginning. He finds out about it after it's already going and he's very bent out of shape about it. And he has this line to the father where he says, I've served you. I've never disobeyed. Look at all this, look at all this stuff I've done for you. Shouldn't that earn me the kind of grace and favor you're extending to the brother? And so we have this sort of works righteousness thing going on where the older brother thinks he can somehow earn his, his father's love or favor or acceptance by what he was doing. But we even see that, that, that all that works righteousness stuff was just really self-serving. He's like, how come you didn't give me a fattened calf that I can go party with my bros? It's self-serving. It's all about what he can get out of it. 
his obedience is still about him. And it's very transactional. I did this, you give me this. How's that different than the younger brother who says, hey, I'm going to get an inheritance. Why don't you give it to me now so I can live life on my own terms? The older brother is just the same. Hey, I did this. I obeyed. I worked your field. I did all this. Why aren't you giving me this? And there's this whataboutism happening as well. Look at, he's deflecting the attention to the other son. How come he gets to have that? How come he gets all that? He's the one who squandered everything. I'm the good one. And we see in the older brother a refusal to celebrate the kind of grace that's championed in the story. He was angry when he heard about what was happening, and he did not join the party. Now, in contrast, look at the, look at the true faithfulness of the father. Notice the older son says, hey, I, I was always here. I was always doing things. Who else was always there? The father was always there. The father was there providing for, extending grace to both sons. There's invitation to grace to both of those sons. And the partier is the one who accepted that kind of grace. Both had strayed in different ways. And the father gave both pathways to come back to himself, come back in the family, and come back to wholeness. So what's our takeaway from this story? We're trying to understand what it means to be a faithful family in the face of cultural coercion. As we're growing in that endeavor, what does it actually mean to be faithful? What does it mean to be a family? What does it mean that we live in this world where we're being coerced by the culture around us? Let's start with cultural coercion. Let's try to understand and wrap our heads around what that means. We here at Anthem are really intentional about our formation, how we're being formed, how we're growing, how we're developing into the likeness of Jesus and becoming a faithful family. We're crazy intentional about that because just by waking up in the morning, you are being formed by something and somebody else. It's kind of a pipe dream to to think that as we wake up in the morning, we are automatically being formed into the image of Jesus. That, That just doesn't happen. In fact, when you wake up in the morning, you're being formed by your emails, you're being formed by your news app, by the weather outside, by whatever text messages are coming in, whatever you're seeing on social media. You're being formed by all the other voices in the world, by those podcasts you listen to or the books you listen to or the friends that you listen to. You're being formed by a whole lot of somethings and someones. And that is all passive. Just by waking up, talking to your spouse, talking to a friend, looking at your phone, there were already a dozen and a half voices trying to form you into something. And I would bet all my money that most of those forces are not trying to form you into the image of Jesus. Usually when we talk about formation into the likeness of Jesus, becoming more like him, it takes intentionality. It takes a a purposefulness. It doesn't happen by accident. The great theologian Martin Luther described kind of all the forces that are at work trying to form you into something or someone other than Jesus as the world, the flesh, and the enemy. The world meaning the culture around us, right? We live in Ventura, Ventura County in 2021, and that has all of its voices forming us. We got the beach, we got the mountains, we got kind of high profile companies, we got our coffee shops, our beer places that we like. All those things are amazing, but they try to form us into a certain image. 
right? It's, uh, it's no accident whenever I like leave Ventura to go to some other part of the county, people are able to sniff out that I'm from Ventura right away. Maybe it's because I'm wearing like my Patagonia jacket or sipping on my like prospect coffee cup or whatever. And they just like can see it a mile away. That's, that's being formed by culture. Once again, it's not all bad, but if that is your primary forming influence, it can lead to some really dangerous places. We're also formed by, according to Luther, the flesh, meaning our own innate inward desires that are usually bent towards selfishness, self-pleasure, self-preservation. Whatever I can do to make me comfortable, me happy. Right? This is why when things get hard, an example, we have to go to Zoom for church People start to bail. Why? Because it's hard and it's uncomfortable and it grates up against our innate sense of what's going to make me happy in this moment. And then finally, the enemy is really clear throughout Scripture that there is an enemy to God. Satan and his demons are trying to turn you away from becoming more like Jesus. There is an epic spiritual battle happening and you can definitely count on the fact that the enemy is trying to get you to become something or someone else other than like Jesus and his most common tool against Christians in the West is trying to get you to become a good Christian and not a good disciple. If he can convince you that somehow showing up at church or maybe just having some intellectual thoughts or just like whatever that is, whatever the appearance of cultural Christianity is, if he can convince you that's what Christianity is, so we got to fight for our rights to gather, right? If he can convince you that's what Christianity is, then he's effectively taken the ability for you to be a disciple away because we're concerned with what's going to make me happy, what's going to fit into my box or my culture. So the question is not, are you being formed? The question is, what or who are you being formed into? Or better yet, who are you becoming? If you look at your life trajectory in 10, 20, 30 years, who are you becoming if all things stay the same? Are you on track to become Jesus, expressed through your person and personhood and personality, or something or someone else? And the invitation of scripture is to counter this kind of formation with intentional formation to become more like Jesus, to choose to be shaped by the Holy Spirit into the image of Jesus. So how do we do that? We've talked about this so often over the last couple years, but as we think about what it means to be a faithful family, right, not just be a faithful individual that's being formed into Jesus in the face of this cultural coercion. But as we're talking about being formed as a faithful family, what does the Bible have to say about being formed as a family together? To that, I want to take you to the book of Acts. So once again, if you have a Bible, flip over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 gives us a small glimpse into that kind of story. Because we see that the early church was faithful, devoted at all costs to the goal of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what he did. And Acts chapter 2 gives us a picture of what that's like. And as we read Acts chapter 2, you can even swap out that word devoted for faithful. Very, very similar word. Devoted, faithful. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed together had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. So we see a devoted or a faithful crew of people, right? They were committed to each other. They were committed to the way. What does it mean to be faithful? It means to be committed. It means you don't pull away when things get hard. It's not waiting for the next best thing or waiting for something better to come along. To be faithful means we come together and with all of our like, beauty and warts, say we're in this together. What does it mean to be a faithful family? Well, family is the number one analogy that's used for the church in Scripture. It's not a building. It's not an event. It's not even um, all the other things we might associate with church. It's actually a family. And for us, as we think about what a faithful family is, a family may conjure up in your mind good experiences or bad experiences. For most of us, it's a mixed bag of both, right? So it's good or bad based on your experience. And what we have in Acts 2 and so many of the other letters in the New Testament is a reframing and reformatting of what family should be like. And we see that in the church. And the church is supposed to be the mirror of a family and the family a mirror of a church. And when things are going really well and people are walking in step with the Spirit, we see this beautiful picture of a church family walking in faithfulness together. What is this family faithful to? Well, according to Acts chapter 2, they're faithful to the apostles' teaching or Scripture. They're faithful to fellowship or each other. They're faithful to community. This is not just buddies hanging out. They're they're coming together around the person of Jesus and they're committed to each other. They're committed to the breaking of bread, shared meals, the Lord's Supper. They're committed to prayer. They're committed to generosity. They're committed to compassion. They're committed to attending the temple together in these larger groups and meeting in homes, these smaller groups. And they're committed to the worship of Jesus. So quick question, is Acts 2 descriptive or prescriptive? Is it just simply describing a people sometime and someplace far, far away? Or is it instruction on how to live here and now? You can do your own homework if you want, but in my homework, just like the rest of Acts, it's both. It is both describing a powerful move of the Spirit in the early church and teaching us how we should live in whatever context we find ourselves. So we're not off the hook when we read Acts chapter 2. You're like, oh, they shared all things. Yeah, but that was then. No, no, no. It's then and it's now together. So how then do we live in light of Luke 15, the true faithfulness of the Father in contrast to the false faithfulness, works righteousness of the Son, How do we live in light of Acts chapter 2, this moment where they're deeply devoted, deeply faithful, committed to each other, to God, and to this new way of living? What do we do in light of all this? What is our next call? Well, like I said last week, each and every week, we're going to end in two spaces. One are some practical and tangible next steps we are taking as a community together in light of the text we've been reading And the second is the gospel truth. That's where we end. That's where we land is what is the implication? How does Jesus actually enable us to do this because of his work on the cross and the resurrection? 
But first, practical, tangible next steps. We are calling our entire church community together. So whether you're watching, listening live right now on Zoom or catching the sermon or this podcast later on in the week, if you are part of Anthem Ventura, this is the call and challenge for each and every one of us. Our next step for today is a call to faithfulness to combat the coercive culture that we live in. The things in Acts chapter 2, particularly great up against one of our most basic instincts and natural propensities, which is to look after myself, self. If you were pricked by anything in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, chances are it pricked you because it challenges some area of selfishness in your life. They devoted themselves to, the, to Scripture, to the apostles' teaching. Well, I mean, what, what if they're wrong? Or what if it says something I disagree with? They, they're devoted to each other, to fellowship. Well, yeah, but what if someone upsets me or makes me angry? What if, what if I get hurt? They're devoted to having all these things in common and making sure there's no need amongst them. Yeah, but this is my stuff. It's my job. It's my paycheck. I get to decide what to do with that. I shouldn't have to share that. They're devoted to worship, to prayer, to compassion. All these things call us to abandon ourselves as the number one authority, the number one object of our attention and pleasure. They call us to die to ourselves. So I'll even just challenge you right now, before we get into the next steps I'm calling you into, whatever thing you were most offended by in Acts chapter 2 is probably the thing you need to grow in. So if you're offended by the fact that they were committed to generosity, that they were committed to sharing things and making sure there's no need, chances are generosity is your next step. To give to the church and give missionally outside the church. If you were offended that they would root themselves on scripture, chances are you need more scripture in your life. Go on down the list. But as a community call, I'll call us to one thing. And that call is going to be towards worship. Worship is the thing that will combat self. Human beings at our core are worshipers. God has hardwired into us a desire to seek something or someone bigger than ourselves that we can adore and praise. And usually we come into trouble when we put ourselves back into the equation and we think we are somehow bigger and more special than ourselves and we want to adore and praise and look after ourselves. But just because we have this God-given desire to worship does not mean that our worship is automatically directed toward the one who deserves it. In fact, worship is often redirected to all of the wrong places. We live out Romans 1 where where it says they, they exchange the glory of God for the creation. Worship gets redirected to all the wrong places. And so this is why Paul in Romans chapter 12 has to write correctively about worship. Where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Meaning, your spiritual worship is you bringing your whole selves. It's not just songs we sing on a Sunday. Those are amazing. But it is our whole selves that we bring to God. And then he adds this in, and I think there's, there's no accident here that he is connecting worship with how we are formed. Do not be conformed to this world that will teach you to worship yourself or worship something or someone else, 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, right? It's a mental adjustment that we are transformed, that by testing you may, desi- you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect, that you may walk in this right way of living. Paul has to correct our worship because our worship is so often conformed to this world. Often, I'll even go a step further, If you have church or Christian background, you think worship is limited to songs on a Sunday, and that is you being conformed to this world. No, no, no. Paul says our worship is bringing our whole selves to God, sacrificing our whole selves, which is not just singing praise and adoration, but it's walking faithfully in community. It's giving of our time, talents, resources. It is putting him on the throne and worshiping and praising him. It is everything. How can we be faithful in our worship? If this is what the call is, to be faithful in our worship, how can we be faithful in our worship? I'm going to share with you guys four things that we find here in Acts chapter 2 that give us some understanding for how we can do this. How can we be faithful in our worship? First, it's by engaging with Scripture. Submitting to external authority. Letting Scripture be the dominant shaping voice in our lives. Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Scripture is useful for all sorts of things. And the first way we can be faithful in our worship is to ground ourselves in Scripture, letting Scripture become the dominant voice in our reality. So a very tangible, practical next step, read your Bible. <laughs> this sounds simple, but how many of you are actually reading your Bible? How many of you are doing it? Read your Bible. <laughs> this is Christianity 101 here. But if you're not doing this, nothing else about Christianity will make sense if you're not grounded in the Word and Scripture of God. So join a Bible reading plan. A few of us have started up reading the Bible in one year. Join in with us. You can find the details for that in the weekly. Find find your own plan that works for you at your own pace. Read with somebody else. Have some accountability. But commit to actually reading Scripture and being shaped by Scripture. Number two, how we can be faithful in our worship is growing in prayer, recognizing and enjoying the reality that we cannot accomplish everything on our own and that there is a beauty and discipline to pausing and going to the Father. Paul says this in the book of Philippians, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In everything. Bring God into the loop. He loves to hear from you. He wants to hear from you. And as a tangible next step, we're going to be growing in this together as a church community. At the end of the month, we're going to be praying and fasting together for one week. Once again, more details will come in a little bit. We're going to be taking a week, and it's not just going to be fasting, but we're actually have some corporate prayer moments throughout, some daily morning and midday prayer, and then some worship times in the evening as well. Already in your mind, be prepared to engage in that week of prayer and fasting. That's a great next step. Third way, we are faithful in our worship. I'm going to make most of you mad with this next one, but follow me here. Generosity. 
living with the glad acceptance that everything is God's, the Psalms tell us, and part of our worship is giving. Now, we can broaden generosity to go time, resources. We can go kind of with our energy, with our efforts. That's all good, but we can't ignore the reality that Scripture, when it talks about generosity, usually hones in on money. That's what we're going to talk about for a moment. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says this to the church he's writing to for a second or fourth time. We don't know exactly. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This is not a formula. This is just a statement about how life works in the kingdom of God. So if you're reaping sparingly, how's your sowing? Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, For God loves a cheerful giver. This is our posture towards generosity. But he continues on just a few verses later in verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower, he's continuing the same analogy, and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. If you're faithful in sowing, God will continue to provide more for you to sow in. And verse 11 starts, you will be enriched in every way. Now, before, oh, Johan, you're killing me here. Go back. There you go. Okay. You didn't see that part. You didn't see that part. How do you finish that verse? It's been said that how you finish that verse will be one of the most important decisions you make in your life. We might think Paul ends it like this. So we might live in wealth. God will enrich you in every way so we can be living in wealth, to be comfortable to be happy, showing the world how much God blesses those who love him, right? We suddenly go into a prosperity gospel. Well, if God's blessing me, it's because he loves me. And so if I'm enriched in every way, it's so that I can grow in wealth so that other people can see how good God is with my Mercedes out front, right? Whether we like it or not, most of us finish the sentence that way. Because when we get a blessing from God, often we think, Oh, this is awesome. This is for me. But that's not how Paul finishes that sentence. He says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Writer and theologian Randy Alcorn says this about that verse. When God provides more money, we often think this is a blessing. Yes, but it would be just as scriptural to say, This is a test. Okay, guys, testing time. You have gotten two stimulus checks in the last 12 months. Like it or not, we're not talking about government, we're not talking about politics. Money in your bank account is a blessing. Can we just agree on that one? Yeah, that's good. Whether you were deeply in need of that extra help or not, it was a blessing. And we could say, God is blessing me. It would also be just as scriptural to say this is a test. What did you do with it? Now, no guilt, no shame. Okay, that's not what we're doing right now. And genuinely, if you're in financial hardship, then that was a blessing that met a tangible need, for sure. But chances are, you could have lived without it. Like, what happened if the government didn't step in and give you that check? You would have found a way to live. The church might have helped and stepped in. You might have gotten a different job, whatever. What do we do with that? Bet your bottom dollar that was a test from God. What'd you do with it? 
Were you generous? Did you help someone else in need who actually needed it? Did you give to the church for whom the Bible calls us to give and be generous? No one's exempt from that one. Did you add padding to your mission allowance for your Anthem community? What'd you do with it? Would you keep it? Tuck it away? Buy yourself something you didn't need. I think whatever you did in those moments, those moments are extrapolating out, will probably reveal what's happening in your heart. Because until God gets your wallet, he doesn't get your whole self. There's still something you're holding back. And like Paul says in the book of Philippians, it's not about Paul who's calling the Philippian church to give. It's to the fruit of their credit. It's for their faith. There's something about releasing the stronghold of money in our lives that frees us up to worship God in very real ways. So I want to invite you into a couple of practical, tangible next steps here. And there's kind of three, depending on on where you're at with this, because I know this challenge is going to meet all of you guys in different places. One, I'd say if if you're not giving at all, make giving a habit. If you don't attend Anthem, or if you attend Anthem, if you're not giving to the church, start by making a commitment to give regularly. And like I've said multiple times, literally any amount. And if you have specific hurt and baggage with the church around finances, give outside the church. Go find a nonprofit organization you love and give to them. Because this is not about the church padding a bank account at all. Although that is obedience in scripture is giving to the church. But this is about releasing your heart from the stronghold of money. So if you have specific and tangible hurt or baggage with finances in the church, find somewhere else to give. But usually that's a small number of us. Make giving a habit. I see all you guys walking around the prospect. You, got, you have margin in your lives, all right? I see you drinking beer. I see you buying crap you don't need all the time. Like, we all have margin in our lives. Life is pretty good in Ventura. So make it a habit. Start small. Start with five bucks a month. I don't care. The amount is irrelevant. Kevin's told us, Kevin Marsden, my father-in-law, who's taught a bunch of financial classes for us, has often told us the amount is irrelevant. But I'm always astonished by how few people actually take them up on that challenge. Five bucks a month. Whatever. Start small and just see what happens as God releases you from the stronghold of money as you partner with him in that journey. All right, a few others, maybe leveling up if giving is already a habit. Live on less. If you give regularly to the church, start giving generously by living on less money, by giving away more money. And if you're already doing that, giving above and beyond, if you're already regularly giving and experiencing living on less, or if you have the spiritual gift of generosity, which is one of those gifts we see in scripture, choose to give above and beyond, whether to the church or somewhere else, and live in this lifestyle free from the bounds of materialism and money. God says in Malachi 3:10, put me to the test and see if I won't bless you on this one. Do it. What do you have to lose? Fourth way we can be faithful in our worship is community. Living in interdependence with those in the local church. Going back to Acts chapter 2 momentarily. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were present with each other. They were taking stock of the needs, meeting those needs. You can't know the needs if you're not with others. You can't meet a need if you're not present. So the next step here 
is presence. Commit to presence. Whether that's on Sunday via Zoom or outside or whatever, whether it's with your Anthem community, whether it's your core group, whatever it is, whatever community God has placed you, commit to presence, being with them, growing in your relationship with them so you can get to the point where you can do what Acts 2 is saying, where you can actually meet tangible needs, where you can live a life that displays the love of Jesus to a watching world. Those are your next steps. Here's your gospel truth for today. God has been faithful to us so we can be faithful toward him and each other. The gospel of Jesus enables us to be a faithful family in the face of cultural coercion. And uh, the last text for today, if you have a Bible, Bible app handy, go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, starting in verse 17, And Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off, think younger son, and those who were near, think older son. He brought peace to both. For through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I'm going to pray for you. Jesus, as we step into this season with a renewed intentionality towards faithfulness, towards worship, whether it's by grounding ourselves in Scripture, committing to prayer, living in generosity and in community, or all four of those things. Jesus, we want to step in with a renewed commitment, knowing that in you, you are building us together to be a dwelling place for God. That there is something unique about when your church comes together, comes together to worship, comes together for generosity, for mission, for prayer, for community. There's something unique that happens with us. There's a unique sense of your presence with us when we come together. It's because together we're being built into a dwelling place for God, built on the cornerstone of Jesus. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us in this journey. We ask that you would help us live this way. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would give us boldness to go after those areas in our lives that we are most pricked or offended by in Scripture as areas that we need to grow in. Whatever we're most resistant to, whatever the thing we're holding back is, Holy Spirit, would you give us courage to actually go after those things and grow to become more like you? And Jesus, as we are growing to become resilient disciples who are this faithful family, living vibrantly in the Spirit, and empowered as this courageous missional presence in our world, we know that that's not actually the, the end game. That's just getting us to be with you, to be like you, and to do what you would do if you were us. So Holy Spirit, would you help us in this journey? I pray blessing over everyone watching right now and everyone who's going to watch later on. 
that they would be deeply convicted, stirred, and encouraged by your spirit. And that we together would live this kind of countercultural world within a world here in Ventura that others would actually look at and like 1 Peter 3 says, would demand an answer for us for the hope that we have. Thank you that our hope is in you and not in whatever, stimulus checks or <laughs> coffee shops or our paycheck or our family or whatever. Thank you that our hope is in Jesus and so we can be resilient and faithful amidst the changing circumstances in our world. Thank you that is a gift from you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.